BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ever thought about owning a piece of history? Introducing the Newt Gingrich contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition silver coin celebrates the historic Republican victory in 1994, marking a turning point in American politics. Give a gift with real historical weight this season. Order now at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zikazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Videos moderated by real people who review content before it's posted to the feed. I love the dance challenges. I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids. <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Hi, this is Newt. 2020 is going to be one of the most extraordinary election years of our lifetime. I want to invite you to join my inner circle as we discuss each twist and turn in the presidential race in my members only inner circle club. You'll receive special flash briefings, online events, and members-only audio reports from me and my team. Here is a special offer for my podcast listeners. Join my inner circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast. And if you sign up for a one or two year membership, you'll get 10% off your membership price and a VIP fast pass to my live events. Join my inner circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast. Use the code PODCAST at checkout. Sign up today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast and use the code PODCAST. Hurry, this offer expires February 14th. On this episode of Newt's World, this is the third episode in our three-part series about China and we're focusing on China's warming relationship with Russia. In June 2019, China's General Secretary Xi Jinping met with Russia's President Vladimir Putin during a three-day state visit to Russia. The occasion was to mark the 70th anniversary of China-Russia diplomatic relations. Both countries engaged in intense talks to deepen their political, defense, and trade relationships. In fact, Xi Jinping has met with Putin 24 times since 2013. During their June meeting, Xi referred to Putin as his best friend and presented Moscow's zoo with two pandas. As the United States engages in an ongoing trade war with China and has put sanctions on Russia for their annexation of Crimea and U.S. election interference, 
we ought to be very concerned about this warming partnership. On this episode, we'll explain why. I'm pleased to introduce my guests, Dr. Oriana Schuyler Mastro, Assistant Professor of Security Studies at the NBNA Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University, and Herman Pershner, founder of the American Foreign Policy Council. Dr. Oriana Schuyler Mastro is an assistant professor of security studies at the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University and an expert on China and East Asian security. I started studying China military issues mainly by being exposed to them in college. So I actually got into Stanford for piano and drama and enrolled in a special program in literature and philosophy, but started taking Chinese language. And so I learned Chinese and then went and spent some time in mainland China where I discovered that we very much needed people in the United States to have a deep understanding of China to manage the challenges of its rise. So I enrolled my last year there at Stanford in a honors program at the Center for International Security and Cooperation, and that was the first time I was exposed to military and security issues, and I just found them to be fascinating and one of the most important components of the bilateral relationship. And from there, I continued on to get my Ph.D. in the topic and to work at a number of think tanks in Washington, D.C., working on defense issues such as RAND and CNAS, and then joined the military myself about almost 10 years ago as a reserve officer where I've been actively working on these issues. So for me, it's a personal passion, but it's also a patriotic passion that I really do believe and have believed for quite some time that this is the challenge that faces the United States, the foremost challenge, and if not managed correctly, then not only would U.S. security be at risk, but the sort of stable, peaceful, and prosperous world that has continued under U.S. leadership is also at jeopardy. So in the 18 years you've been looking at it, how has the situation changed in your judgment? It's actually changed quite drastically. And even small changes can be drastic when they happen for the first time. So I even wrote a piece a couple of years ago in which I talked about the China-Russia relationship, and I kind of dismissed it. And I said that China basically looked to Russia for natural resources and arms sales and some political support in international organizations. But it's really a transactional relationship, and China is not interested in anything else and will not be interested in anything else. But there are a number of things that have occurred in the past few years that have made me question that original assumption. And I think that's actually very important as a scholar. China changes so much, and their policies and their interests are so dynamic that we always have to keep an open mind to the things that we thought were sacred might no longer be sacred. I think you're the first person I've seen who really methodically weaves together a Russian and Chinese mutual interest. How much of that do you think is driven by just trying to cope with us? So I think a part of it is to cope with us. I don't think it's a surprise that China is feeling the pressure of the United States and so is Russia. But there are many countries that feel those pressures from the United States, and you don't see the same kind of courtship happening by the Chinese. 
For example, if you look at, on the political side, Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping have met seven times over the past year. And the two have typically met maybe five times a year, but they've met 24 times since 2013, while she has met with his U.S. counterpart only 16 times in the same period. So they obviously have prioritized this on the political level. Now, I had always kind of thought that was just to poke the United States in the eye, and as a security specialist, what I was really looking for was significant security cooperation between the two sides. And there were a lot of scholars that pointed to a few events that occurred in the past year or two. For example, there was a big exercise that the Russians held called Vostok 2018 that China participated in. And it was the first time the scenario wasn't kind of a counterterrorism scenario, but was an interstate war scenario, which made it relevant for North Korea. So that was kind of a enhancement of their security cooperation. But even so, in my mind, that wasn't a huge sign, right? I mean, military exercises, China sent... You know, 3,200 people to that exercise, it wasn't huge. So I still hadn't changed my mind at that point. What really made me rethink the relationship was when China and Russia conducted a joint air patrol. In Chinese writings, they talked about not wanting Russian involvement in the region. And so in this case, and you know, I don't know the details of how this, you know, this joint air patrol took place over the summer, but this was the first time that it was like China was inviting Russia to be more active in the security sphere in the region. And so this was very problematic because the, the United States military is already at a point that in some contingencies in Asia, we might not prevail given Chinese military modernization. So even the slightest Russian cooperation, even if we're not talking about Russia fighting with China or full interoperability or even reaching that standard, maybe Russia supports a Chinese-Taiwan effort with a squadron of fighters. Even that would complicate U.S. planning significantly. And so what it made me realize is that China is going to start using this Russian involvement to make it difficult for the United States to counter it. And that's what's concerning to me. Do you see the Chinese being the dominant partner, or do you see mutuality, or how would you how would you phrase it? I see China as the dominant partner. And again, this is one of the reasons I'd underestimated the significance of the relationship before, because I had assumed that Russia would demand reciprocity in the relationship. For example, if Russia was going to support Chinese goals in Asia militarily, that they would demand that China supported their goals in Europe. And I'm pretty confident in my assessment that China has no interest in getting involved in Russian revisionism in Europe. I mean, China sees themselves as a legitimate rising power. They see Russia kind of already declined, causing a lot of trouble for no reason. They don't like to be involved in international crises that they themselves don't cause. So I had previously thought that because China was not going to be supportive of Russia in terms of security cooperation in Europe, that the Russians would be unwilling to cooperate with China and Asia. But that Joint Air Patrol signaled that that assessment was incorrect and that maybe, you know, I'd heard from other Russian experts that Russia knows it has to be a junior partner to somebody. And being a junior partner to China is better than, you know, trying to be a junior partner to the United States. And involvement with China gives them more influence in Asia, which they see to their benefit. So the Chinese, at least, see Russia as a little brother in this relationship. Do you see the Russians being able to sustain the relative technological advantages they've had in military capabilities? Or do you see that as their economy has ground down, that that's also applied to their capacity to invest in military? 
I think from the Chinese perspective, they had relied on Russian technology and technological advancements for a lot of the past couple decades of military modernization. But the fact that they're no longer looking to Russia, maybe in terms of jet engine propulsion, they still are looking to Russia, but that's the only kind of area. And besides that, they're engaging in their own indigenous innovation and obviously trying to take ideas and innovation, stealing it from the United States, that they don't see Russia on the leading edge anymore. And I think that assessment is largely correct. Whether it's just close friendship or whether it's actually an alliance complicates our planning for the region overwhelmingly, doesn't it? Right. So my assessment is I'm not worried about an alliance between China and Russia, but I don't think it has to get to that level for it to complicate U.S. planning and to threaten our interests, even if we do just have a close collaborative friendship or a strategic partnership, a comprehensive strategic partnership, which is the term that China uses to designate the highest level of relations with a country, because China doesn't believe in alliances. So the form that the friendship takes might be different than what we're used to, but the bottom line is what you laid out. Is this going to complicate the United States' ability to defend its partners and allies in Asia? And I think if the trends continue the way that they're going with the China-Russia relationship, that that's going to be an additional factor that we have to consider. Coming up, Dr. Master explains why her views on China have changed in the last 15 years. This is week seven of my profile plan journey, and Debbie and I are discussing personalized coaching with our profile coach, Abby. Hi, Newton. Debbie, I'm so excited to be able to talk through personalized coaching and how each profile member works with their coach for a personalized nutrition plan. In the beginning of your journey, we talk at length about your goals and your lifestyle preferences to create a weight loss plan that is right for each of you. Abby, that's one of the things that have really set this process apart for me. Having a relationship with you, I think, has really helped me stay focused and stay on track. I totally agree. And, you know, Abby, you've made the difference. I've tried every diet plan that's out there in the past. And while I've had success, I hadn't been able to talk through the frustrations or what happens if you make a mistake and you've been there as a coach and that's made all the difference. We really take pride in our coaching because we know that it's something that really is going to make a difference in your journey. Another aspect of the profile plan is our profile precise DNA test that we ask you to take. It's a very simple cheek swab and we can analyze how your body may metabolize carbohydrates. I remember doing the DNA test. It's actually very, very easy. And I think there's a picture of me taking the test on the website profileplan.com slash newt. I'm very curious to hear about my results. Me too. I know I struggle with carbohydrate and what I can learn from that. What I really love about the Profile Precise DNA test is that the results really are powerful. So those results make it so that we can build a plan very specific to you. When will we hear about our results? Next week, I'll have your Profile Precise DNA results to share. But for now, keep up the great work. Sign up now to start losing weight today. 
You can do it with a profile coach like Abby, guiding you every step of the way. Go to profileplan.com slash newt. Right now, Newt's World listeners can get an exclusive offer, $100 off a one-year profile membership by visiting profileplan.com slash newt. Get your health journey started today with a free profile coach consultation at your nearest profile location or by visiting profileplan.com slash newt. Part of the reason I just wrote a book on China was because I realized that I'd made a series of assumptions, starting with Deng Xiaoping's southern tour in 91-92, and the idea that as they opened up their economy, that would lead to opening up their country, and therefore, for example, bringing them into the World Trade Organization would make sense because it would get them habituated to the rule of law. And now that I look back on that, I was just wrong. In fact, it seems to me... Deng Xiaoping, who had helped found the Chinese Communist Party, had no interest in becoming a Western democracy in our sense. And he had every interest in a contract with the Chinese people that said, look, you get to have an open market for the purpose of creating enough wealth that you don't mind us running the country, but we're going to still run the country. How does your view of the China you started studying in 2001 and the China you're now studying how has that view changed? That's a great question. It's hard for me to criticize any decisions that were made previously because the information that was available is different than the information now. I don't think we did the wrong thing by trying to enmesh China into the global economy, into international institutions. Now, we have since discovered that there are a number of problematic results from that, right? One, I don't know if it's a generational thing. There was a Washington Post article that posited it as generational. But for me, I'm never disappointed in China because China behaves exactly the way that I predict that they would behave. The idea that through engagement, we would convince China that they were better off with the United States as number one, this doesn't make any sense to me. Of course, China wants to be number one in the region. They don't want to be deterred by the United States. They don't want to have to listen to the United States when they make decisions. And so... While working on defense and security issues, my primary goal is the protection of U.S. interests and the national security of the United States and our allies and partners. So many of the things China does are very problematic from that perspective. But if I were a Chinese strategist, I'd probably be telling them to do exactly what they're doing. And so I'm not surprised or disappointed, but I think that there are a number of ways this could have gone. And obviously, China went in a more aggressive direction. So another thing to point out on the defense side is we weren't talking about China as a national security threat, not because we missed something, but because they were not a threat until probably 15 years ago. The Chinese military was so backwards in the 1990s that the Navy couldn't sail without having visual range of the coastline, that their pilots couldn't fly at night. And so the idea that we weren't paying attention to them as a threat made sense. They just made improvements that were so rapid and much quicker than we had expected. And so I think now, yes, it took us some time to recognize the national security threat. And with that, my own personal views have changed greatly because in the early 2000s, even by the sort of 2005 to 2009 timeframe, it did seem that 
China was pursuing a strategy in which their number one goal is to maintain positive relations with great powers like the United States and to reassure smaller countries in Southeast Asia that they weren't going to abuse their power. So China wasn't engaging in the type of coercion that they engage in now. So it did seem at that point that the United States and China could coexist, China could rise, and we could manage that, and it could be beneficial for all. I think my own personal view changed, and I became a bit, you know, some would say more hawkish on China because Chinese behavior changed. All of a sudden, once they had the military capabilities to do certain things, and they had the economic leverage over countries, they started using it at every possible opportunity. So we see China exploiting international institutions, either rendering them ineffective when they work against China, like Human Rights Commission, or co-opting those institutions for their own personal benefits. We see them using economic coercion against countries whenever they're dissatisfied with something a country has done, and we see them more and more being comfortable using their military forces in the region to intimidate other countries to concede to their overly expansive territorial claims. Because of this, I've become less optimistic about the prospects of cooperation and generally positive relations between China and the United States. And instead, just for realistic and pragmatic reasons, we're likely to see the relationship characterized primarily by tension and conflict between, and competition between the two sides, probably for the remainder of my career. In the 90s, they weren't going to be able to compete with us. But now, they're dramatically more capable. And they've made very shrewd strategic investments, both on the Taiwan Straits and in the South China Sea. And I think my estimate's much more grim than the Navy's. I think we'd have a very hard time and could not sustain the casualties that potentially could be caused in that kind of a setting. So that being the case, they clearly now are stronger, substantially stronger, and are on a trajectory to continue building that strength, aren't they? Oh, yes. I mean, the trends are not in the U.S. favor right now. And we're just talking about what uh, military strategists would refer to as the first island chain is the primary consideration. These are the waters between the coast of China and then Taiwan, Japan, down through the Philippines, basically the East China Sea and, and South China Sea. And then the second island chain, which are the waters that go from the east coasts of those countries to the next chain of islands, that's becoming more and more contested. I've been doing a lot of interviews with military personnel about this issue of how problematic for example, Chinese de facto of the South China Sea would be. And I get a range of opinions. And so I'm trying to figure out why I get this range. And, and I'll break it down what I think I've kind of discovered. There's sort of two things. One, on the scholarly side, I think we're not having the right discussion about the United States deterrent being eroded because of two reasons. Either scholars have wishful thinking about Chinese intentions. They think China would never use force in the region, so the United States doesn't have to be there to deter them. Or they have an overestimation of U.S. military capabilities. But they don't understand the constraints, for example, of range and how much more vulnerable the United States is because we have to rely on enablers. Right? What this means is we're projecting power from very far distances, and so we have to rely on things like tankers to refuel our aircraft, and that creates a vulnerability that China can target. China is projecting power from its own home, so it has a lot of advantages. And so for many people who maybe have just focused on Iraq or Afghanistan or even U.S. dominance since the end of the Cold War, they haven't noticed some of the significant military changes and advancements that China has made. On the defense side, 
people are talking about different issues. When you refer to casualties, that's about the balance of resolve versus balance of capabilities. Now, a military person would say to you something like, you know, China has these islands they've militarized in the South China Sea. I can just blow them up. Sure. Right? Yes, technically that is true, but there's a number of problems with that. I mean, the first is that China has increased the political threshold. Right now, the United States, if China militarizes those islands completely, it's no longer safe for us to fly and sail there, then kind of a first step before our military is even present, before we can demonstrate resolve by sailing around or flying around, we have to attack what China considers its territory. That's very aggressive. It raises the standard, and so there are situations, you'd think, that U.S. president would be unwilling to do that. The second thing is just timing. Yes, the United States could take out some of these systems, but some of these contingencies, like a Taiwan contingency, China could take Taiwan in a matter of days. And so if we're fighting our way in to the area to protect Taiwan, and we have to destroy all these air defense systems. And on our way in, we might not get there in time. And so that's an additional complication. And the last thing is what you mentioned was casualties. The United States does not have the level of resolve that China has. This is just a fact. And we shouldn't waste our time convincing China we care as much about Taiwan as they do, because we do not. What we have to convince them of is it doesn't matter that we're not willing to pay the same price, because we won't, right? We won't suffer the casualties that would make us go home. And this requires resiliency. And so actually, if we have parity in military power in Asia, the United States is lost, because deterrence is a combination of both capabilities and resolve. And if we have equal capabilities, but China is more resolved, then our deterrent is weakened. So we actually have to maintain a level of superiority in our military capabilities in order to maintain our deterrent against China. And that's eroding very quickly. And that's a huge problem that I think neither party is paying adequate attention to. I think we have almost no understanding in the U.S., of the centrality of the party and the degree to which it's real. I try to point out to people that Xi Jinping's party has about 90 million members and Donald Trump got 63 million votes. So I think people tend to oversimplify the relationship between the Chinese people and the Communist Party. We tend to, there are kind of tin pot dictators out there that only care about enriching themselves and don't care about the future of their countries. And the only reason they manage to stay in power is because of the repression of their people. That's not exactly what's going on here in China. I mean, the first thing, I've never met Xi Jinping myself, but my sense in studying elite politics is that, of course, these individuals want power, they want influence, they want wealth, but they also really do care about the future of China. They want to see China continue to rise, continue to prosper, and to become powerful on the global stage. And that this message, Xi Jinping in particular, has highlighted the global role and the respect the world will have for China. This is something actually that the United States and China has in common, that we both think that we're exceptional and that our histories make it so that our rightful place is at top. Next, we'll discuss what the United States strategy with China should be. Hi, this is Newt Gingrich. After I served as Speaker of the House, I opened my own business, Gingrich 360. As a small business owner, I am profit-focused, and budgeting income, staff, marketing, and sales is key to my success. 
As the adage goes, you get what you inspect, not what you expect. If you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. But the problem growing businesses have that keeps them from knowing their numbers is their hodgepodge of business systems. They have one system for accounting, another for sales, another for inventory, and so on. It's just a big, inefficient mess, taking up too much time and too many resources. And that hurts the bottom line. To solve this problem and streamline your books, look to NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform, giving you the visibility and control you need to grow. With NetSuite, you save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance and accounting, orders, and HR instantly, right from your desktop or phone. That's why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. And right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits at netsuite.com newt. That's netsuite.com newt to download your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits. NetSuite.com slash Newt. Given that they're a huge country of billion, 400 million people approximately, and a country of enormous work ethic and, and tremendous organizational skills, many of which I think go all the way back to the original system of examinations and the degree to which Confucianism focused on learning and on discipline and on hard work, Given all of that, what should the American strategy be? So my personal viewpoint is I do like that we have designated China as a strategic competitor. I think that is correct. You know, they're not, they're not an enemy. They're not an adversary. I don't think they're like an evil empire. I personally think that their ambitions, at least militarily, are relatively limited to the region. That if you gave them everything they wanted, if you gave them East China Sea, South China Sea, Taiwan, we'd have nothing to fight about. But the problem is that that is too much, right? And that puts at jeopardy U.S. interests and the interests of our allies and partners. It's easy to avoid conflict if you give the other side everything they want. And so I don't promote that, but it's just to say that I don't think China on the global stage wants to have the power and influence to veto things that the United States does that they don't like, but they don't find it necessary to be number one in the Middle East or in South America. And I, I wrote an article about this for Foreign Affairs in the January-February issue called the stealth superpower. And I say this, not that China has limited ambitions, but to be a superpower, you don't have to dominate every area of the globe. Even in the Cold War, the United States didn't dominate every area of the globe. You only have to dominate the most important and dynamic ones. And China has decided that that is Asia. And so China is very keen to be number one in Asia, but I don't think that extends beyond that. So we are in the strategic competition, but in my mind, what gives China power and influence is it's conferred to them by other countries, by their relationship with other countries. And so to compete with China, our focus should not be on undermining China, trying to weaken China, but instead to make ourselves a more attractive partner to improve our own power and influence with all the other countries in the world. So at one level, we're almost trapped into having to think about competing with them worldwide, aren't we? The nature of power changes over time. And what I'm concerned about in the U.S. approach is sort of two things. The first is that we assume China is trying to build and exercise power exactly the way that we do, which is what made us so delayed 
in realizing that things like One Belt, One Road were a strategic threat to us. Because, you know, building infrastructure in the developing world was not on our list of indicators of things to look for. I don't think that we can expect China to do the same things that we do. So I think we miss a lot because we assume, oh, this is the only way to kind of exercise power. So they do want to compete globally, but they're relying primarily on economic and political means to do that, and, and not so much on the military one like the United States does. The United States has to think more broadly about what is our comparative advantage. To counter China or to increase our own influence, we shouldn't be thinking of doing exactly what China does. We have different advantages. The United States needs to get back in the business of being also an economic power because being the security partner of choice is no longer good enough. Given all of this, do you think that the Chinese-Russian dance together is essentially irrelevant from our perspective because if all we're facing is a regional competitor, that's not like to be a zone where the Russians are going to be able to apply much additional capability than what the Chinese have. Part of it is about additional capability, but it's mostly about horizontal escalation. Asia is the most important region in the world. Over half of global GDP is there. Two-thirds of economic growth is there. The majority of the world's population is there. And so on one hand, you can say it's only regional, but on the other hand, I would say whoever dominates Asia is a global power. And so it is very, very important. And when it comes to Russia and China working together, I think the bottom line is there's enough evidence to suggest that there might be Russian involvement in contingencies in support of China, even if it's minimal, that we have to start mapping that out, looking at how that would complicate U.S. military operations. Is it that there are certain capabilities that Russia can provide to China that are problematic, or is it just that if we fight China, then we're fighting both China and Russia, technically, and that kind of horizontal escalation is problematic. I think at this point, we haven't really thought it through enough. And so in our sort of red teaming, war gaming, tabletop exercises, we always should kind of have now a Russia component of like, well, how could Russia complicate our operation in the South China Sea? How could they complicate our ability to protect the Senkaku Islands? with Japan if China attacks our ability to protect Taiwan. So I think that's the first step. And then we can come to some sort of assessment about what the main problems are with that type of security cooperation and the best way to counter it. I'm really delighted you would spend so much time with us. Well, thank you. Next, I'm joined by Herman Perchner, founder of the American Foreign Policy Council. I was delighted when the first sponsor of Newt's World was Oxford Gold Group. I love entrepreneurial startups of people who are eager, willing to go out and do new and different things. And as a historian, I know that having a balanced portfolio is a very important thing. And they offer financial information and background information that I think uh, is very helpful. So whatever you decide to do in the end, I think you'll find the information they have is really worthwhile, and that's why I'm delighted to introduce you to the Oxford Gold Group. Most of us still remember what happened to our 401ks and IRAs back in 2008 during the financial crash. In a flash, millions of hardworking Americans lost more than half of their retirement and savings. Many of us still haven't recovered those losses, even as the stock market reached record highs. Did you know that while the stock market crashed, the price of gold and silver skyrocketed? 
In fact, investors who had the foresight to diversify a portion of their retirement and savings before the 2008 meltdown watched as the price of gold and silver went up over 300%. While millions of Americans lost their nest eggs in the stock market, many others were able to make gains most people had never seen before. Call the Oxford Gold Group today at one 327 9472 or visit oxfordgoldgroup.com slash newtsworld and request your free investor's guide. Investing in precious metals with the Oxford Gold Group is safe and secure. We tailor investment packages to suit any portfolio. Don't risk the future of your IRA, 401k, or savings on paper investments. Protect your retirement and savings with physical assets like gold and silver. Nobody knows when the next financial crisis will happen. Get prepared by talking to the Oxford Gold Group by calling one 327 9472 or by visiting oxfordgoldgroup.com slash newtsworld. Financial security is just a phone call away. Herman Perchner is the founder of the American Foreign Policy Council and a longtime friend. Describe for us the mission of the American Foreign Policy Council. Our mission is to provide primary source information to those who make or influence the national security policy of the United States. To that end, we travel abroad a lot, building deep relationships in in many places. How often have you been in Russia? I've been in the former Soviet Union 70 times, and probably Russia 65 times, maybe. How often have you been in China? At least once a year since 1994. How do you see the evolution of the relationship between China and Russia? Well, it's gotten much closer. Following the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia and China both needed peace, so they demilitarized the border on both sides. China began to get uh, not just raw materials, but military technology from Russia. And since then, the relationship has blossomed. And there are some people now that make the case that there's a a de facto military alliance between Russia and China. And I think in the short term, cooperation between Russia and China could cause us some problems and maybe even big problems, but I think it's not a durable relationship at all. There's more than a little bit of reason to think there will be a rupture between Russia and China, especially over the territory of eastern Siberia and the Russian Far East, which Chinese historically owned and still covet. China controlled that territory up until 1858 and 1860, and they did so by treaty with Russia, who had aspirations there, but were defeated in a war with China in the 17th century. What you see with the Chinese, for example, in the South China Sea, is a dramatically bigger strategic undertaking. Well, with much graver implications for the United States, too the ability to to choke off or intimidate trade that goes through the South China Sea is a big, big deal. And it's very important that our freedom of navigation exercises continue. How do you see Putin evolving, and how long do you think he can plausibly stay in power? We did an interesting study at the American Foreign Policy Council of 127 post-World War II dictators of 10 million or more. 20% were assassinated, 
42% were kicked out by a coup, like Khrushchev or Gorbachev. And if you're a dictator and you look at those numbers, you understand that your future is not assured at all. And as dictators stay a long time, there tends to be more internal repression and more external aggression. So I think as long as uh, you have Putin in power, Russia is going to be a problem, not just for strategic reasons, but also because of Putin's need to stay in power. He's nowhere near as popular as he seems to be internally. Is he still there 10 years from now? And is there any sense at all of a succession pattern? You know, in China, if she would fall from power, you still have a Communist Party that is very well organized and will continue to rule and will have somebody very capable that will replace him through an orderly process. If Putin goes, there is no process. There is no party. There is no structure other than structure that's totally unique to Putin. When he goes, it may collapse and you may have a prolonged power struggle. It's very hard to get across to Americans the scale and the context of the Chinese Communist Party. The party controls everything. It's absolutely a Leninist power system, and the efforts that were made at the time of Tiananmen Square to diversify power within that system were beaten back, and the hardliners since have had increasing sway. And since then, you've seen those that want to centralize power like she become stronger. I mean, just uh, think of it today. He's moving away from a successful economic model. State-owned enterprises are getting more in favor than private companies. If you operate a private company in China, you're now forced to have members of the Communist Party on your board of directors. If you attend even the official churches, not talking to underground churches, you're forced to sing Communist Party songs during your church service. Centralization of power is ongoing in China, and it remains to be seen to what degree there will be a reaction from other parts of the Communist Party to Xi's continual path. Ninety million members of the Chinese Communist Party have a pretty fair number who actually think they might achieve a better future, that the system might work. I think morale in China is high. I think many of them believe their system is exportable. The big unknown is what will happen with the generational shift. You have now, for some decades, the brightest minds in China, the people that are the sons and daughters of the party elite, have studied in the U.S., have studied in England, have studied in Australia. And this has left a big impression on them, as has the growth of material well-being in China. And if you talk to them, you understand that culturally there's a big gap between them and those that are running the show. Now, what that cultural gap will mean in terms of policy when generations march through the institutions and when they control China, I think is an unknown. I wouldn't even hazard a guess. The only thing I know for sure is it will be different because they are different. The American Foreign Policy Council is an amazing institution. I'm just really delighted that you could take the time and be with us to have this discussion. I look forward, as always, to seeing you again. Thanks, Newt. It's always a pleasure to be with you. The emerging relationship between China and Russia 
has to be a major concern for American defense planners. The fact is that each of those countries thinks that they have more in danger from us than from each other. What once was a historic enmity between Russia or the Soviet Union and China, partly because Imperial Russia had stolen much of Siberia from China, has been replaced by a deeper sense that the real threat is the United States, that we are, as the KGB used to say, the main enemy. And therefore, they're working together. They're finding ways to cooperate. They're cooperating, for example, in Venezuela. They're cooperating with military operations. They've actually recently had a very large training program, one of the biggest they've had in recent years, with Russian and Chinese troops working together on a common battlefield. I think we have to recognize that if this develops and continues to evolve, partially driven by our behavior, we've been very tough on the Russians over Crimea. We've been very tough with the Russians over eastern Ukraine. We've had all sorts of sanctions. A lot of it candidly brought on by the Russians. Nonetheless, Putin, who is a KGB-trained agent, whose grandfather was the chief cook for both Lenin and Stalin, has come from a background where he hates the United States. He's always hated the United States, and he said publicly the greatest tragedy of the 20th century was the collapse of the Soviet Empire. So he looks around, he wants an ally. He knows that Russia is not strong enough by itself to take on the United States. But what if he can develop a relationship with Xi Jinping? Now, at the same time, Xi Jinping is saying, gosh, I can get natural gas from Russia. I can get raw material from Russia. We can develop a joint arms program. We can collaborate in a variety of places. And I think that any American planner looking down the road who is not planning for a potential Russian-Chinese alliance is making a huge mistake. And frankly, as somebody who studies this a lot, if we are faced with a Russian-Chinese alliance, it is going to be very, very hard for us to win that confrontation. So I think it's very important to recognize that this question is one of the central questions of the next 25 years and that it has huge implications for how American national security evolves. In my new book, Trump versus China, Facing America's Greatest Threat, I describe in detail the new era of competition with communist-ruled China that the United States now faces. It impacts every American, and it is important to understand and recognize how we got to where we are today and what we must do as a country to survive. I encourage you to pick up a copy of Trump versus China, available now. Thank you to my guests, Dr. Oriana, Skylar Mastro, and Herman Perchner. You can learn more about the China-Russia Strategic Alliance on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Westwood One. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers, and our producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our editor is Robert Borowski, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. Our guest booker is Grace Davis. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. The music was composed by Joey Salvia. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360 and Westwood One's John Wardock and Robert Mathers. Please email me with your comments at newt at newtsworld.com. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. On the next episode of Newt's World, 
It's been 30 years since the fall of the Berlin Wall in November 1989. And we're joined by President Reagan's speechwriter, Peter M. Robinson. We would often go into these meetings with a question prepared that you could ask. So I explained to him, Mr. President, I learned in Berlin that they'll be able to hear your remarks on the other side of the wall, the communist side, throughout East Berlin, certainly. And if the weather conditions are just right, they'll be able to pick it up by radio all the way to Moscow. Is there anything in particular you'd like to say to people on the communist side of the wall? And Ronald Reagan thought for a moment, and he gave his head that little shake, and he said, well, uh, I'd like to tell them that that wall has to come down. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. The Westwood One Podcast Network. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids like yours, and all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. Ever thought about owning a piece of history? Introducing the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition silver coin celebrates the historic Republican victory in 1994, marking a turning point in American politics. Give a gift with real historical weight this season. Order now at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. There's plenty to celebrate in March and Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Chasing Life. Three out of four U.S. adults are considered overweight or have obesity. 75% of Americans. Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford. Our weight is one factor that plays a role in our health. But by itself, it doesn't give us the full story of who we are. We have to look at our full person. Listen to Chasing Life, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. 